We are working through this beautiful book. It's, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ as described and reflected upon and retold by Mark. And it's, it's rich. And one of the things as a preacher is, I love it when we preach topically. In other words, we say, guys, we're going to speak about the Holy Spirit for six weeks. And then we as leaders get to kind of pull out of Scripture as a whole those things that we feel like we want to teach into specifically. But I love it even more personally when we preach expository preaching. In other words, when we just take the text and we work through the text line by line because it's invigorating. As a leader... Who knows where God's going to take us next week? We've got to be faithful to the text and allow that to lead us. But it's also invigorating because I love it when you see this choreography of the Spirit, this tapestry that God seems to weave between some of the things that we're feeling and the things that the text would naturally want to remind us of and say to us. So this morning is a great experience of that. Let me just remind us this morning. Because I think we're inclined to sometimes forget these things. God's word is powerful and alive. It has the power to change lives. It's his text. It's his story. It's, it's about him. It's about what he is into. It's about what he is up to. And it is rich for giving direction to our lives, encouragement to our lives, truth to our lives. And I love this quote I remember 15 years ago, Nigel Day-Lewis at a leadership conference that I was at, he said these words, and they've stuck with me for 15 years. Regularly in my personal quiet time, I remind myself of these very words as I come to God's Word. It says this. He said this. He said, we don't come to sit over God's Word in judgment of it. How can I believe this? I wonder who it was written by. How can all these authors, 66 books, so many different authors, ah, no, we need to figure those things out. But as we come to God's word, we don't primarily to come and sit over it in judgment. We do well to come and sit under God's word as a waterfall of his truth and grace over our lives. What a powerful reminder. And like I say, I remind myself this of this regularly. So let me ask you this morning. Let me ask you this morning. How many times did you sit under the waterfall of God's grace and truth to you this week? a waterfall available to us. It's my hope that as a people, we would not be a people who come on Sunday and once a week sit under the waterfall of God's grace and truth to our lives, but that we would be regularly in God's word for ourselves and together in life groups and other things. Let's be a people who love God's word. Let's prioritize it daily in our lives because every day, including today, it is a waterfall of God's tr- grace and truth to us. So let's read from Mark together then. Mark chapter one, we're gonna read just seven verses from 14 through 20. And over the last two weeks, Caleb and Rog helped us understand that there has been much anticipation. There's been all these prophetic words all throughout the Old Testament and then 400 years of silence and Jesus rocks up. And right now in this passage that we're about to read, the anticipation is over. Jesus speaks For the first time, I wonder what he's about to say, right? We read together verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said, and Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is God's word to us this morning, church. Will we receive it as a waterfall of truth and grace over our lives? Now, let me just say this. Those are only seven verses. They don't fit on one slide. Seven verses, but there are 10 sermons. I've identified 10 sermons in these seven verses. And so how I'm gonna work it today is I'm gonna package it under three titles, kind of three subsections. Firstly, the message of Jesus, then the call of Jesus, and then the curriculum of Jesus. And I'm gonna spare you the 10 sermons and we will see these three things really wrap those up nicely. And then I wanna spend some time at the end saying how we can't actually distinguish them too differently. They actually are all wrapped up still in one. So let's start with the message of Jesus. Maybe actually just before we get there, let me just say this. When the Bible speaks about timing and context, we do well to listen up. It's unwise of us to just skip past moments where timing and context are pointed out. There is some importance to those things. So listen to timing and context. Now, after John was arrested, that's the timing Jesus came into Galilee. What is the significance of the timing? The significance of the timing is that who was John the Baptist? He was the one who was sent to be a messenger to prepare the way. And so these guys are writing some 30, 40, 50, 60 years later, and what they're saying is after John was arrested, they know that John never comes out of being arrested. He actually gets beheaded. So it's the end of John's time. And what Mark is actually trying to say in that moment is the one who came to prepare a way, his time is finished. The one for whom he had come to prepare is now here. And he's prioritizing in this timing a recognition again, the time is now as we've been hearing for the last few weeks. And then think of context. It says he came into Galilee. Now I'm not sure about you. I didn't know my Bible history all that well. I kind of thought Galilee was another one of those little small towns with lots of, you know, the sheep to people ratio was all out of kilter, right? That, that was my understanding of Galilee. But in looking into it, I found out more. Jesus was actually very specific about where he brought this first message of his and started to speak. Donald English comments on this and he says this, Jesus began his ministry at a place of conflict, threat, racial mixture, and busy activity. Stuart Blanche explains Galilee was the center of a humming political and commercial life. It stood at the crossroads of the nations of the ancient world through which the armies and the traders and the diplomats passed. Jesus speaks his words into this busy, tension-filled, multicultural reality. And Jesus today is continuing to speak into our busy, multicultural, tension-filled reality, his words to us. So what are these words? What is Jesus' message? He proclaims the gospel of God. The word gospel means good story. It's made up of God's spell, uh, God's, um, good spell or story. 
or news, good story. The gospel is the good story, the good news. But he says it's the good story, the good news of God. This is not just some little moment in history where somebody is speaking some kind of good news. He's saying this is the gospel of God. There's significance and importance in that. And then he breaks down the significance and the importance of it. Verse 15, he says, the time is fulfilled. Jesus is again declaring the wait and the anticipation over. We've spoken to that over the last two weeks. And then he says these very important words, the kingdom of God is at hand. That was very important for them then, and it's vitally important for us now. So much so, do you remember the series we did last week? I mean, last year, sorry. Last year, kingdom come in Cape Town as it is on heaven. We, we took weeks to speak topically into the subject of the kingdom come. Do you remember the huge, big golden throne on the stage? If you were here, who was on the throne initially? Me, right? As representation of you on the throne of your life. And there we were. But what happened over, over time? Over time, as we understood this kingdom and we understood the true king, I naturally found myself wanting to get off the throne of my life. And I found myself naturally wanting to reposture and reposition on my knees before the throne, recognizing who the true king is. Do you remember those images? Those are important images for us. And those are important images for us to carry into every day of our lives. See, there was a great misunderstanding, a great misunderstanding that took place in time with the Jewish nation who were anticipating and waiting for their, their promised Messiah. See, they, they understood the times to be like this. Do you remember this? This is the nub of the kingdom of God breaking in. See, they understood, you can look at it in a graph if it's easier for you, my hands don't make sense, right? They understood that there was a current, fallen, sinful, evil age, and they all lived in it. And as the people of God, the Jewish nation, they were waiting for the promised Messiah. And when he came, at that moment in history, he would do away with this present evil age, fallen world, he would do away with it, and he would rule and reign supreme over all things in the future kingdom age which would then go on into the future. You want to know why there's massive confusion within the Jewish nation and people around whether Jesus was truly the Messiah is because that's the way they understood things would be. And their reading of the Old Testament scriptures were like, that's how it's going to happen. And many Jewish people are still waiting today for that promised Messiah to arrive. But we see in Jesus something that none of us expected. This current even fallen age overlaps with the future kingdom age. And when Jesus arrived at this point, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. In that moment, he pronounces the arrival of the kingdom, not the full and finished kingdom. The arrival of the kingdom. And so we live in this overlap of the ages. This overlap of the ages that helps us make sense of how there is a suffering Messiah. Jesus died product of this fallen evil age, but he was the Messiah, product of a future kingdom age breaking into the here and now. And one day, Jesus will return again. And when he returns again, this current evil fallen age will be done away with completely. And the future anticipated kingdom age will live on forever. 
That's what we see, an overlapping of the ages. And this overlapping of the ages has still got many Jewish people mystified because that is not the way that they understood things would happen. And when Jesus says this, he says the kingdom of God is at hand or the kingdom of God is near. He is pronouncing this inbreaking of this kingdom. The kingdom of God is here, but not yet fully here. This helps us make sense of so many things in, in our worlds. Right now, we're praying for healing. Heard of a beautiful story of a young lady in our church who miraculously experienced healing in her spine to the point where she was being sent on to the specialists. The specialists, after receiving healing, observed her and said she's got a full clean bill of health. Happened a few weeks ago. Amazing inbreaking of the kingdom now. And yet I've prayed for many people and not seen healings take place. And don't you dare put it down to my faith. Sometimes in the sovereignty of God, sometimes in the sovereignty of God, we see the inbreaking of the here and now, the kingdom now. And sometimes we don't. And while it's ours to ask, we ask as passionately and as faithful as we can. But we don't yet fully see it come. And ultimately, before Jesus' return, death awaits all of us. But that too, in the future, kingdom age will be done away with. How beautiful is that? Jesus is pronouncing the kingdom of God is here. These are important words. Jesus makes these two statements. Time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And now he brings two exhortations to us. And this is the beginning of the second section, not just the message of Jesus. This continues the message, but it's also the call of Jesus. What does Jesus say? He says this, two exhortations, repent and believe. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, let me just say this on the front end, especially if you would not consider yourself a Christ follower. I'm sorry for the way that Christians have used and abused, misused this verse. See, so many Christians use this repent and believe as something of a whip upon non-Christians. And really, in a lot of ways, they're kind of wanting to almost crack that whip and say, do away with your immoral life and live a more moral life. That is not what Jesus is saying here. Lots of people would kind of go, oh, Jesus, the fun sponge, no more drug, sex, and rock and roll. And that's a misuse of what Jesus is saying here. Think about this for a moment. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. You know what Jesus means by these words? Repent means to turn away from a false understanding of the way things are. Turn away from your previous actions based on those false understandings of the way things are. And do a 180 about turn. So we turn away from some things. We recognize some things as less than God's best for us. Sin is anything that hurts you or others or God. It's less than God's best for us. Dudes, and maybe I shouldn't make it gender specific because it's not. If you find yourself going onto that website and you know the pictures that you're about to look at are unsavory, the repentance that is needed in that moment is to recognize and turn away from the fact that those things will not truly satisfy and looking at them is gonna hurt you and it's gonna hurt your marriage and it's gonna hurt God's hearts. And we turn away, we say these things cannot satisfy 
We repent of them and we say, sorry, I'm sorry, God, that I came to drink at this lesser well. And I turn myself about turn and I say yes to believing the gospel, that Jesus alone can satisfy that Jesus has got a curriculum for my life and your life, which is a life to the full. It's what repent means. It means repent, do away with, ask for forgiveness, say I'm sorry, move your mindset, move the actions of your life away from. Jesus is saying, repent and believe because he's just declared your king is here. You've been living in less, but your king is here. What you, what they back then were waiting for and what each of us today are still longing for is here. Change your mind about the way you live. Switch your allegiance to King Jesus. Trust in him and not yourself in your old ways. And here's the important golden observation for us. And those words, repent and believe. It's this, if you're gonna remember anything from today, remember this sentence. Repentance is the start of all spiritual renewal in our lives. Repentance is the start of all spiritual renewal in our lives. What I mean by that is so many people play this gentle Jesus, meek and mild, come and bless my life a while. And we pretty much just say, okay, cool, following Jesus is me doing my life my way with added Jesus. And that's wrong. Jesus cannot. He can't come bless our lives. He can't live us into the fullness of the life that he desires to give when that's what we're playing. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, come and bless my life a while. He says, no, no, that's not the way it's gonna work. We have to repent of our way of doing things. We have to give up on a wrong understanding. We have to turn away from doing things the way we did it. And we've gotta turn our lives towards believing the gospel. Believing the gospel. Now it's hard for us to step into the fullness of that unless we've repented. Unless we've let go of and said sorry for and moved on from those things which are less than his best for us. How many, how many of us know they're gonna keep tripping us up? I'm that guy. I'm that guy this week. I've been tripped up. But that doesn't stop me from saying, flip, it happened again. I'm sorry. Are you allowed to say flipping church? <laughs> Turn away from those lesser things. God, I've drunken at the lesser well again. I turn towards you. I believe the gospel that your love is perfect and that you died for me in moments like this where my shortcoming would wanna get in the way of me being able to come to my heavenly father. You died for this, Jesus. And so again, I bank my life. I believe the gospel and I hold on to that in this moment. Repentance is the, spot, the start of all spiritual renewal. I wonder about you this morning. What would that look like? See, I hear many people today being hungry, many people speaking of a dryness, many people wanting more, many people looking for renewal. And the problem is when we look for those things to get slapped on top of our unwillingness to repent of the things that we need to repent and turn away from just on top. Hey, God, lay your blessing on top. Fill me, please, on top of me doing things exactly how I want to do them. Repentance. I'm sorry, Lord, I've not lived in your will, in your ways. I'm sorry, Lord, I've drunk at a lesser well. 
I'm sorry, Lord. I recognize these things as being wrong in my life. I give them to you. I leave them at the foot of the cross and I turn to you freshly. Come and fill me. I'm not sure what that might look like for you this morning, but let's close our eyes for a moment. When I was preparing, I felt like God say that he was just wanting to press this repentance thing home for us this morning. Please don't think of yourself as holier than now. I started thinking through my week and initially I wasn't sure of which things I should be repenting for and then the floodgates opened. As the Spirit of God came and convicted of me, convicted me of living in less than his best. Maybe it's repentance needed for lack of trust in God. Maybe it's repentance needed for a wrong view of his love for you, his acceptance in your, your acceptance in his eyes. Maybe it's repentance for sin in your life. Maybe you're living a duplicitous life. There's gross sin in your life. Maybe it's, it's little sin. It's not little sin in the eyes of God. Repentance for the way you've treated people possibly. Repentance for going it on your own, feeling like you're strong enough. Repentance for choosing your will over God's will. Repentance for hoping in other things. Maybe repentance for looking for love in all the wrong places. I'm not sure what you feel like repentance is most needed for in your life, but even today Jesus is calling us to repent and believe upon him. God, we know, and I speak on behalf of many of us in the room, God, we know where we live in less than your very best for us. We know, God, where we trip ourselves up. We know where we give in to drinking from lesser wells. We know, God, where we believe false narratives and start to bank some of our life and the way we do things on those false narratives. And God, we want to repent of these things. We want to change our minds. We want to turn away from them. We want to ask for your forgiveness. We want to lay them at the foot of the cross. And we want to believe freshly upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel that reminds us that we have been accepted. We've been washed clean. That there's nothing that separates us from the love of God. A gospel that reminds us of our position, Romans 5, that is in grace. Why don't you come and do your work of renewal in our lives. In your beautiful name. Amen. Repentance the start of all spiritual renewal. So let me ask you this morning, do you accept these two announcements? The time has come, the kingdom is here. Do you receive these two exhortations to repent and believe, switch allegiance, turn away from and bow to the true king? This is the call of scripture to us this morning, but the call doesn't stop there, it continues. Verse 16, we pick up, it says, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me. It's the second part of the call of Jesus. The call of Jesus to repent and believe. The call of Jesus is to follow me. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Now, for us here today, 
we kind of look at this and we go, ah, Jesus saw some fishermen. Yeah, he called them. That's cool. We absolutely and fundamentally miss the brilliance and beauty of what's happening here. See, what would have happened in those days is that if you wanted to be a follower of a rabbi, a teacher, you would have had to study to age 12, which everybody did, the young Jewish boys, they all did it, and they would study, 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 and then if they wanted to go on to to really kind of pursue this, they would study heaps more, heaps more, and then they would approach a rabbi and say, please, can I become your apprentice? And that rabbi would put them through plenty more testing. And at the end of that testing, out of a group of maybe 10, 12, whatever it was, one or two would be chosen to be able to be apprentices of, to walk with, to journey with, to be a follower of this rabbi, this teacher. And they were called Talmud. Talmud are kind of, they they were followers of the sage or the teacher, right? And so what we see here is Jesus turns that all on his head. None of them came to him. Jesus comes to them. And Jesus comes to them. The first thing we see is a marked difference in in the kind of recruitment approach. And the second thing we see is a marked difference in who's recruitable by Jesus. This is good news for you and me. Very good news. See, Jesus comes to them, and I think we need to not miss out on the divine initiative that Jesus exercises here towards these men. He, he exercises a divine initiative in coming to them and saying, come, follow me. And in that moment, he sets a trajectory that continues even to this day, a divine initiative exercised by God towards people saying, come and follow me. This week on YouTube, I watched a, a video clip, a kind of God's story testimony of one of the last people that I thought I would ever see becoming a Christian. See, this guy, his name's Brian Welsh. I didn't even know that his name was Brian Welsh. I grew up, uh, he's, he was the lead guitarist of a band called Korn. Very dark, very heavy. And when I was in high school, we used to wear these disturbing black t-shirts with like Korn written on them and stuff like that. Some of your parents are going, ah, oh, remember those, we cast them out, right? Anyway, the point is, this guy, Brian Welsh, I listened to his, his, his clip on YouTube and he tells the story of how he was in, in complete desperation, and he speaks to this guy who's making the monster truck for him. Typical American, monster truck, bro. Okay, he's got lots of money. He's a man, he needs a monster truck, right? So he's getting this monster truck made for him, but he's in the depths of depression and just finished with life. He wants to die. And this guy he's speaking to and he's kind of sharing his sad story with him, whatever, it says, man, you gotta come to church with me this Sunday. There's a hope in heaven for you. And he goes, I got nothing to lose. And he comes to church that Sunday and he hears the gospel of Jesus Christ preach. And he goes home that afternoon and he says, he didn't speak to God, he shouts at God. He says, God, if you're real, I need you now. It was a genuine call from his heart. He says, the presence of God enters the room and he hears these words, the words of Jesus saying, come, follow me. The same words that the disciples heard, he heard in a near audible not most probably audible, but near audible kind of way. Come, follow me. Guys, he wasn't even in my top three million list of who would come to be. No Jesus, right? Divine initiative moving in on people. It still happens today. Last week, Roger spoke about the hammer of heaven, that sense of when the presence of God just presses on you. When he said that, I remembered another 
of heaven, the hound of heaven. G.K. Chesterton and uh, Tolkien, and there was a poem written in the 19th century called The Hound of Heaven, where God still chases after, takes initiative, moves towards people, and calls them to follow him. It's a beautiful dynamic. And we see that being represented, started here in Jesus' movement toward the disciples, and it continues into our day today. The second thing that happens is we see Jesus choosing these unqualified individuals. Jesus is still choosing unqualified individuals today. Is an invitation to come and follow him. And that takes us into the third kind of overlap and third point, which is the curriculum of Jesus. See, the curriculum of Jesus is to follow him. Remember I said a few weeks ago, we want to give ourselves to practicing the way of Jesus with the people of Jesus. Why? Because people make people and practice makes people. Remember the hippies? Remember the people who look like their dogs? <laughs> the people we hang with shape who we become. And the practices we give ourselves to shape who we become. Practicing the way of Jesus with the people of Jesus. When Jesus calls these guys, he calls the unchosen ones. He says, come and follow me. You'd think that this following Jesus dynamic is real and alive in any church community, but listen to how David Platt speaks to the danger of how many Christians don't actually get what this really means. He says, churches are filled with people. Lord Jesus, let it not be us. Churches are filled with people who seem content to have a casual association with Christ and give nominal adherence to Christianity. Scores of men and women and children have been told that becoming a follower of Jesus simply involves acknowledging certain facts or saying certain words. But this is not true. Disciples like Peter, Andrew, James, and John show us that the call to following Jesus is not simply an invitation to pray a prayer. It's a summons to lose our lives. These are serious words. No more gentle Jesus, meek and mild, come and bless my life a while. Jesus calling us to follow him is a big deal. Listen to how this immediacy in their following came at a price for these disciples that Jesus followed. It says, and immediately, verses 16 through 20, and immediately they left their nets, their father, their boat, their hired servants, and followed him. They followed him. Think of everything that those things represent. See, their nets would have represented their livelihood and their income. Their father would have represented their family relationships and the expectations of others upon them. Their boat would have represented their good life, their inheriting the family business. Their servants would have kind of represented their privilege, their comfort, their support system, and they walk away from all of it. These guys give it all up to become apprentices of Jesus. But they obviously believed that they stood to gain a lot. I don't think anybody just jumps off the boat and gives it all up without thinking there is more to gain over here than over here. Pearl of great price, right? Sell all this so that we can buy the field in which the pearl is. Another Bible story for those of you catching up on that. What he, he says is, 
come and follow me. And straight away they go, yes, we want to follow him. Why would they, why would they say yes? I think they, they believed that they were going to gain a lot. Man, this Jesus rabbi dude, I mean, he's, he's, he's quite a big deal. People are already starting to speak about him. He's pretty famous in these parts. Maybe he's the promised Messiah. Let's go and see and find out. Now he's welcomed them, unqualified, unprepared into their crew. I'd imagine they can't believe their luck. And they know that they are completely unqualified, and yet they get this invitation. It's like Bill Gates and Trevor Noah. (laughs) Completely unqualified and yet invited. Why does a billionaire computer geek give up all of that to come and play tennis? He's completely unqualified, but what a cool opportunity. Play with two of the best tennis players the world has ever seen in all of history. Trevor Noah, particularly unqualified, right? And he comes unqualified and yet invited. He says, yes, I'll be there. They drop everything. They come. It's worth noting that Jesus meets them where they're at. That's the third thing. Not only does he initiate towards them, not only does he choose the unqualified, he meets them where they're at. He comes straight into their career, straight into their livelihood, straight into their lives. And he says, come on, I've got a different way for you to live. Come and follow me. I don't think the disciples quite understood what they were in for. I think the disciples made the mistake that many of us still make today. See, they didn't understand that this wasn't an invitation to follow a philosophy or a religion. Maybe they got it wrong that this wasn't an invitation to follow a popular figure while the going is good. And this wasn't an invitation to go through a God season in life. And this wasn't an invitation to the often longed for good life of privilege and comfort. This was and is an invitation to follow a person. Dallas Willard, he says this, He comments on the terrible mistake that so many of us make, and he says, the greatest issue facing the world today with all of its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. Dallas Willard's figured it out. If only Christians would live as Christians are called to live, this world would be quite different. If you ask me today, what is the greatest challenge of the Christian life? I'd say there it is right there. Becoming disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ and steadily learning from him how to live. Guys, there are so many versions of what the good life looks like and they are being presented to us wholesale in beautiful packaging. There it is now. The good life, your Mauritius holiday. The good life, that model man. The good life, you fill in the blank. They're being wholesale packaged to us with some very nuanced accuracy. And yet, how to live Jesus is the only one who can truly teach us. See, Jesus says if we'll follow him, he'll make us. He will make us. He'll make us into his likeness. This is good news. Mahatma Gandhi said some profound words, some very sad words for us. He said these words. He says, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. 
And that should break our hearts. That someone so profound with so much insight would reflect upon us in that way. So let me ask you, how well are you doing in following the person of Jesus? Is your pre-Jesus and your with-Jesus experience of life as distinct as you would hope it should be? Following Jesus is at the heart of Christian discipleship. Ask someone that you trust how you feel like you're doing, how they feel like you're doing in following Jesus. See, most of us have got a pretty well-developed faker meter, and your spouse and your friends will tell you pretty clearly where your following Jesus may do with some fresh attention. <laughs> following Jesus is not saying yes to wearing your Jesus Saves t-shirt. It's not saying yes to big amens during the sermon. It's not praying in your most godly voice. No, saying yes to Jesus is all about becoming more like him, more like him. If you've never heard the message of Jesus, today's a great opportunity to respond to him. But for most of us that have said yes to that message, let me show you how the three things come together. The message, the call, and the curriculum. The message, the call, and the curriculum. They actually all work together. And guess what? Every single day we say yes to the fullness of them. Every single day we answer the call to repent and believe. Every single day we freshly are spurred forward by an understanding of the time is now and the kingdom has come. And every single day we say yes to following Jesus and allowing him to make us. Allowing him to make us. These things cannot be separated out completely. They have to be held together. And I think this provides, this text provides some hard-hitting tests to us to check how wholeheartedly we are saying yes to following Jesus. So let me just pause for a moment. Let's reflect upon what these guys walked away from and, and figure out, is there a version of this that may be spurring our following on in our response? Let me ask you, are you still pulling nets for yourself and your own well-being? Or have you switched to pulling nets for Jesus? He said he will make us. In other words, are you serving your purposes or are you serving his purposes with your life and career? Second observation, are there relationships in our lives that are coming before Jesus? Any idolatry around our kids, our spouses, our friends, any holding out for that future love to complete us? Relationships getting in the way of following Jesus. What about future hopes and dreams? Are those Jesus' dreams and purposes for your life? Or are you holding on to a version of inheriting the family boat, the good life? What about our privilege, our comfort, our support systems? Are we holding on to these in a way that is not allowing us to embrace the curriculum of Jesus in our lives? Are we able to follow Jesus in giving ourselves away? Lastly, are we experiencing him make us into someone new? Do the people around us in our very closest relationships, do they see the changes? Are our responses becoming more like his? This is the reality of the story. The end of the story did not end as the disciples would have anticipated. Following Jesus cost them plenty. But I think if you had to ask and interview each of the disciples now, maybe take Judas off the list. 
I think all of them would say it was gloriously worth it. Gloriously worth it. They could go through their, what's the traditional three score and ten? Fishing, building business, being connected. Or they could give their lives over which they did to the king of the universe and the most exciting thing happening on the planet of earth today. Do we see Jesus for who he truly is, the king of all things? Do we see him as enough? People make people. Imagine what we'll look like if we all hang out with Jesus. And practice makes people. Imagine what we'll look like if we all gave ourselves to the ways of Jesus every day. Every day. Let's bring this into a close. I want to invite you to close your eyes. And I want to do a little visualization exercise. I'm not going to ask anyone to respond. I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up or anything like that. I'm wanting to lead you in a visualization exercise to think something through. I want you to think of the last week, and I particularly want you to think of this last Friday. This last Friday, I want you to think through, what did you do when you first woke up on Friday? What did you give yourself to? What did your Friday morning look like? What did your lunchtime, afternoon, early evening look like? What did you do on Friday evening? Let me ask you the hard question. How much following Jesus would you say you did on Friday? Now, I want you to imagine that you pushed repeat on Friday every day for the rest of your life. And I want you to consider giving yourself to the people that you gave yourself and to the practices that you gave yourself to. And this past Friday, who are you becoming? Who are you becoming? While we ponder that, I want to ask you to rethink of Friday. Let me ask you, what could follow me have looked like in the mundanity of this last Friday? When you woke up in the morning, what would follow me have looked like? When you went about your day in your place of work, what could follow me have looked like? What would you follow me look like in your interactions with people? What would follow me look like into your family and into your relating and into your evening how would follow me inform who you hang with and the types of conversations that you have with them and now think for a moment if you pushed repeat on a follow me day every day for the rest of your life who would you become who would you become heavenly father We understand that we are called to be followers of Jesus, practicing the ways of Jesus with the people of Jesus. And God, when we think of our lives, uh, it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen very quickly. But if we again and again and again give ourselves to saying yes to following Jesus, we take such courage, God, from Peter, Simon Peter in this story.
Simon Peter called out of his fishing boat right here in this passage, and he goes on to be the one that doubts, and he, he acts out in anger and chops off the centurion's ear, and, and then he denies you plenty times, but every single time he's still choosing to say yes to Jesus and to following you. And God, we take courage where we read in John 6, where many people walk away from Jesus, this same Peter, Simon Peter says, when you say, will you too abandon me? You say, you speak out, he speaks out and he says, to whom shall we go for you alone hold the words of eternal life? He banks his whole entire life on following Jesus. And then he goes on to be the one who preaches the first church sermon and founds the church that we today participate in as a continuation of. Jesus, we take heart from looking at Simon Peter's life. We take heart and we say freshly today, yes to following Jesus. Yes to practicing the way of Jesus. Yes to the people of Jesus. Won't you cause our lives to look and feel and be different because we have said yes in every day and every moment and every interaction to following Jesus. We pray this in your glorious name. Amen. So we're going to bring things to a close. But I'm actually, as a leader, asking God to plague you with this this week in the best way possible. That when you walk into your interactions with others, when you walk into your place of work, when you walk into Whatever it is that you find yourself walking into this week, be that ups or downs, I'm asking that Jesus would plague you with this. What does following me look like? Because it's when we give ourselves to that that we see us transformed into his likeness. We've come to the end of our time this morning and we're gonna close things there. But there's a team of us that would love to pray for anybody who would need prayer on that side, our guests. We'd love to connect with you on that side. To everyone else, there's tea and coffee. Don't feel like you need to rush off. But have a great week, everyone. Cheers.